Hello there, and welcome to Looking Over Life. It's been quite a while since we've uploaded an episode, but this one will be extra special because James and I are together in person. Finally. <laughs> Say hello, James. Hello. What do you think about this recording setup? Do you think we should record in person more often? It'd be nice. Um, of course, uh, getting a round-trip ticket from Peru every couple of weeks might be a little cost-prohibitive. <laughs> yeah, we're not making quite enough money to do that. Alrighty, well, we are going to change things up uh, just a bit and try some new things this time around. James and I spent a few hours this morning brainstorming ideas for the podcast, and I'm excited with what we have in mind for the future. Today, we're not content merely with recording in person, so we're going to we're going to go a bit outside our normal format with this episode and bring some new elements in. To get us started, James, tell me something interesting. Well, anybody that knows me knows that I am fascinated, some would say obsessed, with anything related to space. So rockets, spaceship, space exploration, uh, space probes, anything space, I just love it. Right. I'd heard this fact a while back, but I read it again in an email newsletter that I get. You know, when you think of spacecraft, you think of, you know, space-age materials, carbon fiber, titanium, aluminum, all these really fancy materials. Yep, that's what I think of. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you see, you might buy a knife or something like that, and it says aircraft-grade aluminum uh-huh. or whatever yeah. to, to kind of try to sell it to you. Sometimes you use materials that you wouldn't quite expect. So just a brief introduction to why this is necessary this material you wouldn't expect, Mm -hmm. when you launch something into space, it takes a huge amount of energy. What gets into space is only about 5 to 10% of the entire mass of the rocket when it lifts off. Really? I didn't know that. So it just takes a huge amount of energy. It's uh, like 90% of spacecraft is simply fuel. Wow. But when it gets into space, it's going incredibly fast. I think things in low Earth orbit are going on the order of 25,000 miles per hour. (sighs) Um, that is crazy. <laughs> 17 kilometers per second, if you like your uh, your metric units. Mm-hmm. It's going incredibly fast, and it takes a lot of energy to get into space, but it also, you have to slow down. So you have to get rid of that, that energy. Kind of an analogy we're used to, when you get going really fast in your car, you have to hit the brakes, and it takes a long time to slow down. Yeah. Your brakes get really hot. Well, when you come back into the atmosphere, you have to bleed off all that energy, all that speed. To do that, they use a heat shield. So... It's so much energy when you're coming back into the atmosphere that it creates so much heat that there's basically no metal that could withstand the heat. It would just melt. Okay. Maybe the only metal that might work would be like tungsten, but tungsten is denser than lead. It's actually the same density as gold, and so you you don't want to be making your spacecraft out of tungsten. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, let's get the heaviest thing we can and see if we can get it into space. Um, exactly goes against what you're supposed to do when you're mm-hmm. building a spacecraft. You want them as light as possible. So they're coming back into the atmosphere. They're hitting the atmosphere incredibly, you know, we're talking like five, 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit, incredibly hot. And so they have to have some way to prevent their spacecraft from just burning up. Yeah. So what they do, they have this heat shield. What they oftentimes use is they use a heat shield made of an ablative material. Okay. What that means is it basically burns up. So oh. as it's going into the atmosphere, it starts burning, uh, ablating. Parts of it are actually, like if you're inside the spacecraft, you look out and you see chunks of, of like white hot stuff going past your Just the window. ablating. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's just the heat shield burning up. Okay. That's what it's supposed to do. They have used cork to make heat shields. Mm. So it's lightweight. 
you know, cork is very light to make these heat shields and they work well because it insulates very well. So it doesn't, you know, the heat stays on the outside of the cork. It doesn't come into the, into the spacecraft and melt it or kill the occupants. Mm-hmm. It stays on the outside and it slowly burns away as it comes into the atmosphere. And so there are some people that use bark <laughs> on their spacecraft because that's what cork is. is what? Bark. <laughs> so that's crazy. Yeah. So you have titanium and carbon fiber and bark. <laughs> Sending up trees on your spacecraft. Yeah. <laughs> Shooting trees into space. <laughs> All right. I'm looking forward to today's topic. James, you are a techie, sciencey sort of person, like you said, and I really enjoy hearing and learning about that sort of thing. So I've asked to talk about some aspects of modern technology, but we can't talk about that without first looking at the past. So let's begin with talking about some technological leaps from history. Yeah, when you start thinking about that, if you look at both population growth and technological development over the last several thousand years back to ancient times, mm-hmm. it's been very, very low. So the population hardly grew at all. And then all of a sudden in like the 16, 17, 1800s, it starts going up. And then in the 1800s and 1900s, it just basically goes straight up. I think it was in 1960 or 70, we had about half the number of people we have today. Really? Yeah. So it's only that far back, and you only have to go back another 50 or 60 years until you have half of that. Wow. Um, of course, we have, I think it's maybe seven point seven and a half, seven point six billion, something like that. Uh-huh. And it, it's kind of the same way with technological developments. You start off ancient times, and you, you, have, you have wheels and levers mm-hmm. and so forth. And now today, of course, we have the internet, we have spacecraft, we have satellites that are shooting lasers back and forth to transfer information. Yeah. <laughs> Just... I mean, you know, in a sense, we're almost living in the future. Uh-huh. Um, but if you look back, the developments we have now depended on developments in the mid-20th century, the 1950s and 60s. Those depended on ones before that. And so you keep going back. Mm-hmm. So like you said, you kind of have to go back a good ways and kind of see what the developments are. And you, you sent me a list of questions and you said, you know, what are some technological cycles or leaps that have happened in history? And so mm-hmm. I started thinking about that. And if you go all the way back, you probably start with agriculture. Yeah. Um, of course, some of this is comes from secular scientists. So I'm not sure. I would say that even in ancient times, we had fairly advanced civilizations. I mean, we weren't necessarily cavemen. Mm-hmm. But, but still, I'm guessing after the flood, we probably had small groups of people. They were probably, you know, hunter-gatherers. They mm-hmm. would kill animals and gather berries and uh, dig up roots and things like that. And so it took a huge amount of time to gather enough food just to survive, especially if you were in a northern climate where it mm-hmm. got really cold in the winter. But with agriculture, now you can you can produce much more food. So you have these huge swaths of land for wheat, and in the in the new world you had potatoes, corn also in the new world. You could you could have fewer people could produce the food, and then since you had an excess of food, then you could have some people that would spend their time, basically, you could say they were scientists back in the ancient times, inventors, and they could invent things like the wheel. Mm-hmm. Or So it freed it freed up some minds to do things beyond uh, weeding the garden so exactly. that they could start advancing technology. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. then you have, you have art, literature, things like that. Then, of course, you have people were able to start mining ores, smelting them, making weapons. In the Old Testament, it talks about 
how can't remember the exact reference, but I think the Philistines had better metalworking than the Israelites did. Okay. Like I think maybe it talks about iron chariots. Mm-hmm. Um, so you hear about like the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, right? And bronze, which is an alloy of copper and tin, I believe, that was much harder than just copper by itself. So mm-hmm. so it worked really well to make weapons or even tools, you know, hoes and things like that. It's it's much uh, a hoe. We don't think about that as a technological development, <laughs> yeah. but you know, using a hoe is much more efficient than getting down your hands and knees and pulling mm-hmm. weeds. They were able to develop that, um, and that wasn't possible until you had agriculture where everybody wasn't trying to survive. You had some people that could spend their time developing metal. You said the hoe is more efficient. Isn't that somewhat the the driving force behind technology is how to be more, more and more efficient with whatever our processes mm-hmm. are? Yeah, that really is. Uh, to where it requires less less human energy mm-hmm. to produce the same amount of calories, mm-hmm. for instance. I mean, that's kind of the main main thing throughout most of history is food production, because if yeah. you can't eat, then there goes your civilization. Right. And there's some civilizations that collapsed, and we don't really know why they did. For instance, the Mayan civilization mm-hmm. in Central America. Of course, South America, wasn't it? Uh, it was mostly in Central America. Okay. Um, like Mexico, Belize. Oh, right. Yeah, I was uh, thinking Guatemala. Aztecs. Yeah. We really don't know why they collapsed. We have these huge pyramids left behind, but we don't really know why they collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, then the Aztecs came along after that as well. Mm-hmm. But some people think it might have been due to food production. One of the things that really helped agriculture was the domestication of plants and animals. Okay. Oftentimes you hear domestication of animals, mm-hmm. and that makes sense. I mean, you take animals... And now they're tame, and you can get their milk, and you can... We no them. longer have saber-toothed tigers. We have house cats. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's it's quite likely that dogs were domesticated from wolves or something mm-hmm. like that. We don't quite know how, how all that worked. It's just speculation. But but we don't think about domestication of plants, per right, se. Right, right. Scientists believe that what we know of as corn or maize, that was quite possibly descended from a a grass called... Teocinti, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, mm-hmm. but it's just like some kernels, just a couple, like a line of kernels. It looks like almost like a head of rye or of wheat, hmm. but it's got little kernels instead of like smaller little grains. And of course, now we have sweet corn with however many rows of of kernels, and right. it's been bred to be extra sweet. There's different things that have happened to domesticate plants. So plants want to spread their seeds. Mm-hmm. That's really bad if you're trying to gather the seeds. So yeah. that's what we eat. Rice, wheat, rye, corn. It's the seeds of the plant. Mm-hmm. But what plants want to do is get rid of their seeds. Mm-hmm. So they have this layer. Once it gets mature, it kind of severs the seed from the stem and it falls down mm-hmm. on the ground. So that way more plants come up the next right. year. Right. But that's not good because then all of our food is on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that they think happened is humans selectively bred or picked the wheat and the corn where they didn't fall to the ground. They stayed attached. Okay, gotcha. And kept breeding that, so it made it more efficient. So Hmm. there's some things like that that made agriculture able to produce much more food, which then led, it's kind of a snowball effect. Mm -hmm. It's interesting about the corn. I didn't know that research into that specific grass type, but in Peru, where we're living, some of the some of the agriculture is still a bit behind North America in a lot of ways. 
interesting fact about the corn there is that it's different in both its shape and its texture and taste. So it's a more, well, definitely less sweet, more starchy. And, and like you said, the domesticated corn that we have here in North America, sweet corn is a lot um, tastier in some way. And that reminds me of an article I read on the Cavendish banana mm-hmm. and its history, how, how it has gotten to where it is now, where it's actually quite sweet and has a completely different flavor than it did even 50 years ago. So we have domestication of plants and animals. And then, oh, speaking of Peru, mm. uh, potatoes right. came from that area, kind of the Andes. Mm-hmm. Potatoes are in the nightshade family, mm-hmm. and nightshades are poisonous. Mm-hmm. But potatoes aren't poisonous. Uh, well, unless they have the green spot, then that's actually poisonous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so what they think happened is that the potato was domesticated mm-hmm. because the people there in the Andes would dig up these fleshy tubers and eat them, and some of them were bitter, and some of them weren't as bitter. Mm-hmm. Now, most poisons are something called alkaloids, and they tend to be more bitter, more bitter tasting. Yeah. And so if you would constantly plant the ones that were not as bitter, you would slowly breed out the poison. Mm-hmm. To where it wasn't, it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't give you a stomachache. Right. I think the same thing happened with almonds. Almonds have a little bit of cyanide in them, I believe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they they bred out the the cyanide because it was kind of bitter, and people don't like bitter foods. And so now we have almonds that we can eat without worrying too much about being poisoned. Okay. So how does domestication of corn and potatoes get us rockets? <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Well, that um, kind of back to what I've already said. If you have more food, then you can have rocket scientists yeah. because they don't have to be growing food. Okay. And that's kind of what we've been doing with agriculture. I think even just 100 years ago, mm-hmm. maybe 20% of the workforce was involved in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And now it's in the single digits because we oh. have tractors and that sort of thing. Right. And so that frees up more people to, to teach school mm-hmm. or to start their own business manufacturing whatever or to go to college and be a rocket scientist well that's kind of, that's fascinating that you say that because peru is considered a developing country and the majority of people i would say are still heavily involved in agri- agriculture for their for their food and for their income so mm-hmm. you could you could draw a line that as they move from or as they become more efficient in that, Mm -hmm. that's going to free up more people to put in roads and put in other infrastructure and so on and develop the country. I mean, here in uh, developed countries, we have gardens, Mm. but I mean, how many people actually need their garden? Right. It's almost more of a hobby. (laughs) Sure. Really. I mean, well, I much prefer a garden tomato, Mm -hmm. but I don't need garden tomatoes. Right. It is almost more of a hobby type thing. Then we have the age of exploration, and that was actually driven largely by people wanting spices. Mm-hmm. So they wanted black pepper. Black pepper was extremely expensive years ago because it only came from one area and it took months. Sometimes it would take maybe upwards of a year to go yeah. to the island where the black pepper was grown and bring it all the way back to Europe. Then they started spreading out. You had Columbus that came to the New World. Of course, he wasn't really the first person to come to the new world. Of mm-hmm. course, the people that were there <laughs> had discovered the new world already. Right. Um, and there's a good bit of evidence that Vikings were in kind of the Canadian, like Newfoundland area, but due to changes in climate and so forth, they 
went back to, to Iceland and, mm-hmm. uh, and Scandinavia where they came from. As things got more efficient with domestication of plants, someone was sitting around fiddling with, with recipes and he was like, you know what would make these potatoes a lot better? Pain. <laughs> we need to find something to make this hot. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because chili peppers, well, uh, this goes on to this whole thing of the age of exploration. They start, well, they actually, the age of exploration was made possible by developments in navigation. Uh-huh. So they started coming out with these navigational instruments. You have the compass allowed them to tell whether they were going north or south and they had other instruments that allowed them to tell whether you know where they were in latitude so how far they were north or how far they were south Mm -hmm. maps they came out with maps so they could they could travel and know that they weren't going to die um so this is this is asia exploration is around when in history 1400s is when it started that is amazing (laughs) um and then of course in the 1500s is when it really took off Mm-hmm. especially in the new world. So you say navigation and maybe some people listening to navigation would think that that is when Google Maps assistant <laughs> tells you which way to turn, but that's you're saying ship travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ocean and, travel. Yeah, and also developments in ships. So mm-hmm. they had ships that were made primarily for the Mediterranean Sea, which mm-hmm. is pretty usually pretty calm and you're really close to a port a lot of times, mm-hmm. but they're able to develop these instruments where they could go hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the shore. Yeah. And could know that they were going to be ending up at this certain place. And and also back to the whole, the fact that there was a lot more food meant they had money. You have way more money, you have more wealth. And mm-hmm. so you can actually afford to send a ship 15,000 miles across the world to pick up a couple pounds of peppercorns and bring them <laughs> back and sell them for many times the, the yearly wages of a surf. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. And then you have the Columbian Exchange. Columbus comes over. Uh, immediately things start going back and forth across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. You have potatoes, chili peppers, corn, many other things that I can't think of what they all are. Well, even animals th- yeah. didn't horses. Isn't that when horses became a thing in North America? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we often think about uh, the American Indians having these horses and running around and shooting bows. And well, they didn't have horses until 1500s. Mm-hmm. Um, the horses came over with the Spanish who were conquering Central America, Mm -hmm. and some of them got loose, and then you have the Plains Indians that we think of. That was pretty recent. Yeah. Up until that time, I think they used dogs to haul a lot of things. So you have the Columbian Exchange. There's also a lot of... I I want to interrupt you about the Columbian Exchange. For many years, up until far into my adult life, I thought the Columbian Exchange was when people found that there was coffee in Colombia. I am sure that I read about the Columbian Exchange many times in school, mm-hmm. but history was not my thing. And yeah. so I just thought it was coffee. Yeah. And interestingly enough, coffee is from Ethiopia. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was part of the Columbian Exchange. They brought coffee over. I'm trying to think what else. I think chocolate also was... I can't remember where chocolate came from, but that was also part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, diseases, unfortunately, right, was was a very uh, tragic part of the Columbian Exchange. That happened. Now, then we had the printing press, mm-hmm. and that was in I can't remember exactly when Gutenberg developed the printing press. They had printing methods before then, but that's kind of when things really took off. That was in the mid 1400s, I believe. Right. Um, and up until that time, books were very expensive, mm-hmm. and so you would have one scientist in one area would make this discovery, 
and it would basically stay in his his book. You you couldn't. It was very difficult to take his findings, replicate them, and then send them to some other person who could build upon those ideas. They didn't have email. That's right. And so with the development of the printing press, you could now replicate. And so that kind of helped to jumpstart the Renaissance mm-hmm. and the scientific revolution, the 15 and 1600s, when you have people like Newton and Galileo and Copernicus mm-hmm. and all these. Uh, Newton developed, published his book, um, Principia. I can't remember the the whole title, but that was part of it was, was Principia. We all know. Yeah. <laughs> and he was able to publish that, and then thousands of copies were printed mm-hmm. and then spread across the entire world, and people started developing new instruments and new ideas and uh, discovering new things from his... Oh, yeah. He also helped develop calculus, mm-hmm. which was very important in later developments. That would not have been possible without the printing press. So he is responsible for many crying high schoolers. <laughs> yeah, I never took calculus. I actually wished I would have, so I would know a bit more about it, but I guess I'm a little bit strange that way. So sometimes we say... Uh, we don't need to reinvent the wheel when we're trying to figure out how to solve a problem. In a sense, before the 15th century, people were having to reinvent things in all of their own regions because, like you said, there was no, there were no patterns, there mm-hmm. was no schematic easily mm-hmm. available to recreate something, even if you happen to know from some explorer that it was in another country. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was Newton or if it was another scientist in his era, but he said, I stand upon the shoulders of giants, mm-hmm. saying that, what he is able to accomplish is only possible because of the people that came before right. that he can build upon. Mm-hmm. And that would not have, have been nearly as possible without printing press. Skipping ahead about 200 years, you have the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. And that's really when things started to accelerate. And really the main thing that happened with the Industrial Revolution is man was able to find ways to to power things that did not rely on wind mm-hmm. or animal muscles or man's muscles. So kind of natural, natural power. Mm-hmm. That's right. So they were able to use, you have windmills, those things have been used, uh, water power, but you know, what if you want to build a factory somewhere in the middle of, 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 of the continent and there's not a river going past that right. allows you to use, or it's not that windy. Mm-hmm. Well, then how do you power? Well, then you can't build a factory there mm-hmm. because you need power to run all these different things. Well, then they came out with, it was steam engines. Like mm-hmm. It was James Watt built, yeah, one of the best steam engines in the early 1800s. And so that just is, is when things really started to explode because now, instead of having one horsepower or a man's muscles, which is much less than a horsepower, mm-hmm. you could have many horsepower to pump out, you know, pump out mines, which allows you to produce coal. Um, and then, of course, you have the development of much faster transportation with the locomotive, mm-hmm. which was able to use these steam engines, and they first started with wood and then they went to coal. Steam power powered the civilization up through, I would say, the first part of the 20th century. Uh, there were even steamships even up until even up until well into the, the 1900s. So like the Titanic, mm-hmm. that was a coal-powered ship. Mm-hmm. And so now, instead of it taking, you know, before you had steam, it would take weeks oftentimes to go across the Atlantic. Right. Well, then the Titanic and other similar steamships, they could get across the Atlantic. And, uh, the Titanic couldn't. <laughs> well, the Titanic didn't. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Um, that iceberg just kind of got in the way. Mm-hmm. They're able to cut the amount of time uh, in half or even in a third of what it was before. 
And before the railroad, it would take months to go across the United States. Mm -hmm. By the time they had the Transcontinental Railroad, it could be done in maybe a week. Mm -hmm. And so that transportation allowed people to to move around, allowed goods to be transported. And now we can travel from the Andes Mountains in Peru, which is like something close to 3,000 miles from where I sit now. Mm Mm-hmm in less than a day, less than a 24-hour period. Yeah. Also, another thing that really happened, not only was it being able to access power other than human muscles and, you know, horse and mules and oxen, now they also were able to, because they had all this extra power that they could do something with, they could now do automation. And so there was a lot of automation. So the cotton gin was kind of what caused the South to become, you know, produce huge amounts of cotton, which unfortunately also led probably somewhat led to the increase in slavery in the South. Right. But then you also have spinning machines. So you could you could um, make thread, and then you have weaving machines that you could make cloth. So before, it would cost, well, I don't even know how much it would cost, but clothing was very expensive. But now that you could do things much faster, with much less human labor, you could produce cloth much more cheaply. And so then there was more income that you could spend on other things instead of spending all of your income on a, a shirt and a pair of pants and food and then you have five cents left over <laughs> um, yeah it's hard for hard for us to imagine so you read you read stories even even some stories that are fairly modern like uh so some of charles dickens works or something like that and, and you you read about poor people who had no clothes or couldn't afford couldn't afford to buy a shirt or that sort of thing. And and it wasn't one or two people here and there. It was huge uh, communities of people who mm-hmm. experienced that. But it just material or buying a shirt, like going to town and getting a shirt off a, off a rack, for example, just wasn't a thing mm-hmm. until recent years. That's That is, blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, just the huge amount of – well, just think about it this way. So you have a sheep. Mm-hmm. You grow the sheep for a couple of years or a year, and you shear it a time or two, and you mm-hmm. take that wool. You have to then, what is it called, carding maybe? Yeah, yeah. You have to kind of straighten it out and clean it and so forth, and then you have to spin it into thread, and that mm-hmm. takes however many hours of, of human labor. And then you have to take that thread and weave it, and that takes however many hours of human labor. Right. And then you have to have a person with a needle and thread has to put this thing together. And so a shirt might take, I don't know, I don't know if 20 hours of human labor is yeah. a reasonable amount of time to say. Yeah. And now we have these machines that can do, if you go to a cotton gin, I went to a cotton gin down in Mississippi one time, mm-hmm. and it was fascinating how fast they were removing that cotton, these gigantic bales of cotton. Mm-hmm. And of course, they were they were using these harvesters to, to pick this cotton instead of having huge amounts of slave labor. Mm-hmm. And then that cotton goes somewhere else. And so, I mean, human hands might not hardly touch the stuff right. until it's being made into a shirt or a pair of pants where where you need human input. Okay, um, so as these technologies are happening, these developments are happening, things are getting more and more efficient. Like some of the people are becoming Einsteins and, and other uh, smart people like that. But not everyone became a scientist or inventor. So mm-hmm. what happened to all the people who didn't have work to do? Well, I think pretty much everybody had something to do. I mean, back then there was still a lot of people in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And there was still, yeah, there were still lots of lots of things to do in some of the factory towns. 
and and actually that's I've been talking about all these scientific developments and it brought it brought some amazing things but they were not without their downsides. Mm. We talked about that in our episode about social media, right? How that sometimes there are these downsides that we cannot imagine. And so before the industrial revolution, a lot of people were living on farms out in the country, they were very poor. But then you have these factory towns that that spring up, you have these weeding machines and and so forth. And then they move into town to get this job, either because they there's no uh, things are becoming so mechanized that they can't really make money on the mm-hmm. farm anymore. So they can't have to compete. Yeah, so they have to go in town. So now they're in this factory town in very unsafe working conditions. If you get injured, if your hand gets lopped off, well, oh, that's too bad. And mm-hmm. they just get the next person to come in. Children would work. You know, children as young as four and five and six would work and wow. kind of get in between the machines and reload the the spindles full of thread and so forth and get get maimed and mangled um oh dear and also they had all these steam steam engines you know a lot of them burned coal and so there was coal soot everywhere mm-hmm. um so these these towns were just covered in smog and everything was black because of all the coal dust everywhere it was very horrible working conditions in a lot of ways and it wasn't until the early 1900s where different protest movements and political movements started banning child labor mm-hmm. and making safe working conditions, making it to where uh, employers had to had to make things safer and had to take care of their workers. Mm-hmm. So OSHA, which is kind of a <laughs> a bad word a lot of times, yeah. people just scorn and scoff at OSHA. And some of the things, no doubt, are, are kind of ridiculous. But when they were developed, it was a it was a necessary thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that idea. If you have that that context of history, it makes more sense mm-hmm. why those things were necessary. And also, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, that was developed in the early 1900s because back then you could put whatever preservatives you wanted in your <laughs> yeah. in your uh, meat and working conditions. Uh, it wasn't just working conditions; it was sanitary conditions. Mm-hmm. They would uh, is downright disgusting. I think there's a book called The Jungle. I can't remember who wrote it, what, what the writer's name was, but it was describing some of the meatpacking districts in Chicago, and they would just dump stuff out in the out in kind of the canal or whatever, and you could almost walk across the surface of the water. Oh, Sometimes no. it was so disgusting. That's horrible. So not not all these things were were good, but definitely things were things were improving in some ways, but not in others. Due to the industrial revolution and being able to produce more food, you have also, advances in medicine and sanitation, you didn't have nearly as many children dying early. And so you have many more children uh, surviving to adulthood. Population started exploding in the early 1900s. Um, and so in the 40s and 50s, it got to the point where people just were not sure how we're going to feed everybody. Uh, for instance, India, mm-hmm. had it was uh, the population was growing. There were famines. And people were saying in the 60s and 70s, we're going to have literally hundreds of millions of people starving to death. Mm-hmm. And then there was this man, I can't remember where he's from. Was it from Ohio? I think it was in the Midwest. His name is Norman Borlaug, uh, B-O-R-L-A-U-G. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think he was maybe from Norwegian background. Mm-hmm. And he went down to Mexico and started doing plant breeding. And he was able to develop new strains of wheat that were able to produce much more than before. Mm-hmm. And so in the course of about a decade, Mexico went from importing wheat to exporting wheat. Okay. Similar things were happening with rice mm-hmm. and also other other types of grains. 
Norman Borlaug took this strain of wheat, took it to India. There was also a strain of rice that they that was taken to India. And in the course of a decade or so, it also went to where India was actually exporting. <laughs> it was actually exporting um, rice and wheat. And That's I think incredible. I, uh, I was doing some research for something I was working on. And I looked, and India is one of the largest exporters of wheat today. Really? Sorry, not not wheat, rice. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Um, today, even though they have over a billion people living there. Plants are pretty, um, they adapt very quickly. They change very quickly. Yeah, they can. And this isn't this isn't genetic engineering. This is just your standard plant right. breeding. Right, yeah, just line breeding. Mm-hmm. So Norman Borlaug and his plant breeding kind of jump-started what we call the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was due to plant breeding and also synthetic fertilizers. Okay. In the early 1900s, uh, right around the time of the First World War, there was a German chemist called Fritz Haber, mm. uh, and he helped to develop what we now call the Fritz, um, the Haber-Bosch process, which there was another chemist called Bosch that helped to kind of industrialize it and make it work mm-hmm. at a larger scale. And they were able to take nitrogen from the air, combine it with hydrogen from natural gas, and make ammonia. Okay. And you say, okay, what's, you know, I don't need to clean that many things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, ammonia can be used and turned into fertilizer. Mm-hmm. So at that time, they were running out of fertilizers to use. Mm-hmm. And so the amount of plants that a, like an acre could produce was going down. Mm-hmm. There wasn't enough manure. There was also guano reserves down off the coast of Peru. Right. There's the guano islands. Mm-hmm. Um, those were getting mined out of guano. This, it's a fascinating story in mm-hmm. and of itself. So they were running out of that, these natural sources, but he was able to make this ammonia out of the air, basically. Mm-hmm. And so now we had almost unlimited fertilizer. Um, and so now we could start dumping this fertilizer on these new strains of wheat and rice. And I think in some cases, the yield per acre was increasing by eight to 10 times. Just an incredible increase in. In production. That is astonishing. So, but then there again, that has some of its own unintended side effects that we're still dealing with today. Here in Virginia, Chesapeake Bay um, has went through periods where it's been pretty bad health. And a lot of that is due to both sediment and some of these fertilizers washing off into the Chesapeake Bay, which then causes these dead zones in the water, which kills kills the, the fish and the crabs. and. Mm-hmm oysters and everything else. And so there is also a downside to to this this blessing. And that that's really goes the whole way through these technological developments, there's almost always a downside. And it seems like in the last what, hundred fifty years especially, or maybe the last two hundred years, I'm not sure, things have been going at such a exponential and breakneck speed that now today you're seeing more we're having to pull back the reins on a lot of things because some of the effects are finally being seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which of course, you know, right now the big thing is uh, the climate crisis is what you, is what you hear about where people mm-hmm. are worried about uh, a warming climate. Yeah. It, it remains to be seen what all is going to happen there, but really we've made a good bit of progress in the last 30 or 40 years mm-hmm. in kind of dialing back some of that pollution and so forth. that has been happening. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that has been due to, government passing laws that, uh, for instance, in the 70s and 80s, we started having issues with acid rain. And the acid rain 
um, is caused by sulfur oxides from mostly from coal-fired power plants mm-hmm. going up in the air, and they mix with water in the air and turn into sulfuric acid, which is the same acid that's in battery in batteries. Oh, okay. And then that comes out in the rain. It can kill trees, and it can also get in streams and kill fish and cause problems there. Mm-hmm. Um, what they started doing is they started passing these laws, so now they're able to use a chemical process to kind of scrub out a lot of that sulfur oxides. And so the amount of acid rain, it's still not completely gone, mm-hmm. but substantially went down. And so you have uh, lakes and fish and so forth that are coming back. And then in the 70s, there was really bad air pollution areas like New York City and Los Angeles, uh, mostly from automobiles. They developed catalytic converters, mm-hmm. which use um, kind of a ceramic foam with um, certain types of metals on them to take the nasty stuff coming out of the tailpipe and combine it with oxygen to make it to where it's not dangerous. Mm -hmm. Take carbon monoxide, combine it with oxygen to make carbon dioxide, which is not, although it is poisonous in high enough concentrations, it's not nearly as dangerous as carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides, and so forth. Um, So we we have made some some advancement, but yeah, there's some things that it isn't until a, a decade or so then you realize... Oh wait! <laughs> yeah, this is this is not good. Uh, it's damaging, damaging us, damaging our health, or it's damaging the environment, which we live in the environment. Mm-hmm. And so, if if things get too bad, eventually we're going to be affected as well. When I think about some of the large scale negative effects that we have relating to the climate, or to people in general, or countries, I often think about how the world wars somewhat instigated some of some of those big big effects even if it is related to um, more factories or i think of what uh what is the name napalm Mm -hmm. and uh of course you have hiroshima and so on so how how did that those sorts of effects all come Mm -hmm. about as tragic as the world wars were and i mean there was i think it was in the order of 40 to 60 million people died in world war ii between both military deaths and civilian deaths, they did because of that's it's a very intense period where whoever has the best planes and bombs and tanks and artillery is going to win. Yep. It it pushes development. And so in nineteen oh three, I think I've got that right, was when the first airplane, you know, the uh, the Wright brothers okay. down in yep. down in Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. That was the first plane. And World War One started in 1914, mm-hmm. so it was only 11 years later. Mm-hmm. And they had these little flimsy biplanes. Yeah. Well, by the end of the war, they had they had these things loaded up with machine guns and bombs, and were shooting each other out of the air and yeah. bombing, yeah. bombing uh, people. Um, and in between World War One and World War Two, they realized that air power was going to be this incredible um, because I mean you can just fly right across the enemy lines into the in behind mm-hmm. and bomb them from, you know, with, with impunity without even being harmed by the people on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so they realized that air power was going to be the next big thing. And so they started putting huge amount of research into that. Well, then you have, of course, civilian applications, civilian transport. And I think it was in 1927 they finally flew. Uh, that was when Lindbergh went across the Atlantic for the first time. So we're not yet to 100 years. Yeah. Which, that wasn't the first time anybody ever went across the Atlantic. It was the first time anybody had flown across the Atlantic solo, mm-hmm. I believe. 
And then World War II came along, and that was probably even a greater increase. And then after World War II, then the Cold War began between the United States or uh, NATO and uh, the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And so they were constantly worried that if we don't have the best technology, if, if a war ever does break out, we're going to be beaten. Mm -hmm. And so they constantly had to be developing technology. So these governments were pouring billions upon billions of dollars, probably by now trillions, into scientific research and development, primarily for military purposes. And a lot of these military applications trickled down into civilian applications, mm -hmm. which led to what we consider modern globalization. Mm-hmm. Back to World War II, toward the end of World War II, you had the bombs that were dropped on Japan, the atomic bombs. Mm -hmm. Well, as soon as, as soon as the war was over, or even before the war was over, these scientists realized that you could use this, this power to kill people. Right. But if you harnessed it, you could also use it to produce electricity and do other amazing things. Mm -hmm. And so now we have nuclear power, nuclear power plants, which we don't have a lot of those in the United States, but a reasonable number. And then also, uh, during, the, during the Cold War, they want ways to be able to drop bombs on the enemy as quickly as possible. Yeah. Well, they had planes, but planes are relatively slow. And so they, uh, during the end of World War II, both the Russians and the United States were trying to get as many German scientists as possible. Yeah. Because they had, had done a lot of work in rocketry. Mm -hmm. They had experienced that firsthand um, when they were dropping these rockets on London and on England. And so they tried to get as many scientists as they could. And so right after the war, they were doing these, these experiments with these rockets. And finally, they got, they got the rockets big enough that they could put an atomic bomb on top of the rocket mm -hmm. and shoot it over to the Soviet Union or to the United States. And so now you have what is basically the space race. Mm -hmm. The space race started off in the late 50s starting to put things actually into orbit. I think the first thing in orbit was uh, Sputnik, mm -hmm. which horrified the Americans because they thought they were ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then that ended in, I would say, 1969 when the first man landed on the moon. Mm -hmm. um, was that real? <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, which, actually, it's interesting you, you talk about that. Recently, I saw kind of it was a, it was a comic. They said that, well, you have you have men sitting on top of 3,000 tons of rocket fuel. Where else do you think they're going? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're not going down the, down the block to get a Slurpee. Yeah. <laughs> then, during the space race, I mentioned this back in kind of the introduction to this episode. You have to make things as light as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, is the lighter your spacecraft is, the less fuel you need to get it into orbit. And so they developed new alloys and different materials that we use today. They also had to develop ways to control these spacecraft because it was not really something that a human could do. Right. And so they started developing these computers. Some of the first real computers were actually developed by the space program to go to the moon. Mm -hmm. The computers that we are recording on right now quite likely would not exist if it had not been for the space race. Right. And the space race wouldn't have occurred if it wouldn't been for the Cold War, which wouldn't have occurred if it wasn't for World War II and everything that happened there. It's a, a domino effect. Mm -hmm. So how, how does today's rate of technological change compare with, say, the 15th century, the 17th century, the 19th century? 
I would say that the rate of change is definitely increasing. If you look at the well, just the uh, like just the number of patents, that, that's maybe a way that you can gauge how fast things are increasing. What's interesting is that in around 1900, mm-hmm. somebody said, "Well, let's just close the patent office down." There's no way anybody's going to invent anything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad they didn't shut it down. But if you look at the patents, the number of patents, they have been increasing. Uh, I think you might have mentioned uh, the term exponential. Mm-hmm. And I would say it continues to do that. And I think the reason is, is because it builds on itself. Right. Like, for instance, with population growth, mm-hmm. it's a similar type of thing where uh, you start out with two rabbits, then you have, then they have, let's say, four babies. Now you have six. Mm-hmm. And each of those has that each couple has another four. And so it just compounds before until mm-hmm. in 10 or 15 generations, there are like more rabbits than stars in the universe or something. Right. You end up with rabbit <laughs> island. So is there is there a a ceiling to that? What do you see now? We're, we've been looking back. Now we're looking forward. So what mm-hmm. do you see about the exponential growth? I would say at least it seems in some ways like. We're almost, it, it feels like we're stagnating a little bit in some ways, but it feels like we're sitting on the cusp of some huge advancements. Mm-hmm. Probably some of the biggest ones are in like AI, like artificial intelligence or machine learning, mm-hmm. which machine learning is just another word for artificial intelligence because what we currently have, it's not like in our computer is is a is Siri and Siri's like, oh, I know that I'm Siri. I'm self-aware. Right. It's just... It's, in a sense, learned, but it's not really learned necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it's machine learning. It feels like that is maybe on the cusp of a, of a huge advancement. But for instance, Elon Musk supposedly is worried that we're going to be killed by robots or something right. when AI becomes self-aware and decides, you know, I don't like humans very much. I'm oh. going, to, <laughs> going to wipe them out. Sure. I would also say that like genetics and some things like that, it feels... Like there's some uh, there's some pretty amazing things there. Mm-hmm. So the ability for personalized medicine. But anyway, yeah, back to your original question. You were saying, is it still increasing? Is there a limit? I would say that we're maybe stagnating a little bit, and it feels like we're waiting for something else to kind of kick off a new, you know, kind of like a new printing press or a new. Sure. And I think people thought that the internet was going to be that. And I would say that it has, in some cases, done that a little bit. Mm-hmm just making information more accessible to more people. Mm-hmm. I do think there's an upper limit. And when I, when, I, when I hear questions like that, I think about the Tower of Babel. Right. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something along the lines of there was nothing that they could, they put their minds to do that they could not do. Yeah. And I don't know if, if there's, we're just going to continue developing until the Lord returns. Mm-hmm. I would say we probably will to a certain extent because there's still so much left to be discovered and for us to do. Right. But I would say that I'm really interested in in some of the higher level physics, like just kind of the bleeding edge of, of what they're discovering. And it feels like we're just kind of hitting against a roadblock and can't go any further. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm guessing that simply because we are limited fallen humans, we're probably, there's some areas that we're just going to hit up against a roadblock and we simply cannot go any further for our own limitations, mm-hmm. uh, knowledge or yeah, knowledge, wisdom, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but there are some emerging technologies now. Do you have any that really 
excite you that you're you're hoping that you live long enough to use or yeah <laughs> or see develop yeah whenever we go on a road trip and i'm planning on going on a short one here in a couple of days mm-hmm. whenever i go on a road trip i think man i really wish i had a car that could drive itself <laughs> <laughs> i do not like driving like oh, some yeah. people some people love driving on the interstate mm-hmm. i do not like it mm-hmm. it is it just gets boring mm-hmm. and also i'm acutely aware of if I look down or if I, if my son is in the back seat and he needs something and I try to reach back and help him out, all it takes is a little tweak of the steering wheel and I smash into a tractor trailer and we all die. Yeah. Fire, Driving <laughs> is not crash. safe. Yeah, it is not safe. And so if I could have something that I could, I mean, even if it's just the interstate, not driving through town or driving on country roads, if it's just the interstate. If I could just punch a button and say, okay, I want to go to Hartwell Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I could punch a button and I could just read a book, listen to a podcast or whatever, take a nap mm-hmm. and just wake up six hours later and I'm there. That would be amazing. So there's better, there are other ways or better ways that you would like to use that time. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> it just does not feel, which I mean, oftentimes, you know, if there's not somebody else there that I'm talking to, a lot of times I'll just listen to a podcast or an audiobook to try to somewhat redeem the time. But mm-hmm. uh, it just feels like a huge waste and yeah, like I said, I'm very much aware of my own limitations. So um, a self-driving car is not going to be steam-powered. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gotten 100 years into the future. I'm really excited about electric cars, mm-hmm. which, you know, we're living in Peru, so we're driving llamas there. But um, <laughs> I, coming back to the States after having been away for a couple of years, getting back on the interstates, it is incredible to me how many electric cars there are mm-hmm. on the roads just in the last couple of years. Yeah. You know, most of the cars I see on the roads now are Teslas, mm-hmm. uh, electric cars. Just last evening, I saw a Chevy Volt, I think. And that's mm-hmm. that's more of a hybrid. But you do see a decent number of them. Yeah, I would love to have an electric car, too. And it's not because I'm a tree hugger that wants to save all the polar bears. Mm-hmm. Although, it'd be great if polar bears didn't disappear. <laughs> yeah. I would like an electric car simply because I get tired of changing oil in my car. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's practical. (laughs) Yeah, like I I blink my eyes two times and it's been 3,000 miles. Currently, I'm I'm already over when Mm -hmm. I should have changed the oil in my car. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to deal with transmissions going out and engines. Like I had to replace the engine in my current car a number of years ago. It was horrendously expensive. They say that electric cars should have longer lifespans than the current gas cars we have now mm-hmm. even with battery degradation they, they would still last longer than what we have now and they're also gonna be cheaper to run i read an article that said this guy bought this brand new tesla model s and for whatever reason he must have been a traveling salesman or something but he put a hundred thousand miles on his car in two years mm-hmm. and the total cost to run that car i think was under three thousand dollars mm-hmm. two things can we just take a moment to think about being able to tell someone in the early 1900s that in two years you could sit in a buggy and go a hundred thousand miles. <laughs> <laughs> and then secondly, there are some people who love to hate on electric cars and emerging technologies related to that, because they say that to make one electric car, you basically have to uh, burn down an African nation or something like that. So like, do you have any facts related to some of those mm-hmm. technologies? I'll admit I did not read it in depth, but I did recently see an article that there was a scientific study done to see the environmental impact Mm -hmm. of electric cars versus gasoline-powered cars. Mm -hmm. And yes, it does require more more energy and more pollution and whatever 
to make an electric car than a gas-powered car, but over the entire lifespan of the vehicle, uh, electric cars are better for the environment mm-hmm. because you don't have to be drilling for oil and refining the oil, and then you're burning the oil um, in your car and spewing out pollutants, which thankfully for uh, for catalytic converters, they're not usually too bad, but they can still still cause problems. I think in China or in, in other in other places that don't have quite as restrictive regulations, mm-hmm. there's sometimes they have to turn on their lights in the middle of the day because the smog <sighs> is so bad. Wow. <laughs> Do you have a prediction about technologies, whether it's vehicles or, or some other machines that are using fossil fuels, a prediction on, are we going to see those completely gone in X amount of time, or is it just going to diminish and we'll have gas or diesel-powered things still, but there will be a lot of supplementary electric things. Yeah, I would say they're probably going to decrease, but I don't see electric vehicles completely taking over. Mm -hmm. Long-haul trucking, um, you have to haul 50,000 pounds of watermelons Mm -hmm. from Georgia to Virginia. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you can do that on an electric-powered tractor trailer. Maybe you can. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a possibility that battery technology will get good enough that you can do that. But even more than that, what about like locomotives? Mm-hmm. Are you going to have battery powered locomotives? I don't think so. <laughs> well, there's also the argument of if the machine itself is efficient enough that you could have um, more of them. So one of the reasons we have locomotives and tractor trailers is that we're trying to get as much stuff into one big machine mm-hmm. so we have only one trip. Mm-hmm. But if it costs, you know, maybe next to nothing, say you have a solar-powered car, well, why not just get an automated train <laughs> that takes all the watermelons in several loads because mm-hmm. it's not going to cost anything anyway and there's no humans that need to sit in the vehicle to take them from yeah. Georgia to Tennessee. Yeah, and you could also have uh, electric locomotives. I mean, a lot of in, – in Europe – and Japan, they have these locomotives that are that are electric powered, and so there's a possibility you could do that. But you have to build out your infrastructure to do that. True. But then you have airplanes, and they are already selling and developing uh, electric airplanes, but they're mm-hmm. more for very short flights mm-hmm. because getting up to speed and altitude, and then landing again with short flights is very inefficient. Mm-hmm. But with an electric plane, you can carry your batteries and you can do it. So I think that there might be some some electric planes, but they'll be more short range, like maybe 200 miles or 300 miles or that sort of distance. There is some promising technology uh, with possibility of maybe using hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So you can use, instead of, uh, you can use solar energy or wind energy or nuclear energy to split water into, uh, into hydrogen and oxygen then use that hydrogen either in a fuel cell to make electricity to turn electric motors, mm-hmm. or you can just burn it like you burn gasoline. Right. And then use that to, to power airplanes. Because liquid fuels, it really comes down to energy density. Mm-hmm. So batteries, for as heavy as they are, they don't really have a lot of power in them. But you take a gallon of gasoline compared to an equivalent amount of energy in that weight of batteries. Sure. The amount of gasoline is... I don't know, 20, 30, 40 times more. I see. And and so it's you can easily carry the amount of fuel that you need in a plane, but to carry enough batteries to fly across the United States, I don't think it's even possible within the laws of physics. So if we could uh if we could power a jet with hydrogen, then we could just like burn the ocean to get 
<laughs> Basically, um, of course, it takes a good bit of energy mm-hmm. to to take the water and turn. It's not like just filling up your your car with water. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So I'm guessing the future is going to be for personal vehicles and for short range transportation is going to be electric mm-hmm. and batteries or something along those lines. For longer distances, it's probably going to be some sort of liquid fuel. Mm-hmm. It could be either hydrogen from you know splitting water using electricity, or it could be fuels made from like you know biofuels. Sure. There's even some some research being done into taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turning that into basically gasoline. Of course, that takes a lot of electricity, so you have to have electricity. So the question is, how do you produce all this electricity? Yeah. Well, dear listener, if this podcast lasts until James is around 80 years old, you can uh, see if you can find him somewhere and <laughs> and connect with him. I don't know if there's going to be email then and let him know whether he was right or wrong with his predictions. I'm guessing that Elon Musk's Neuralink is going to be going and so they can just... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They'll probably all just be like brains swimming around in a saline <laughs> solution. Uh That should wrap it up for this time. Thank you for your patience while we worked through technical difficulties recently with the podcast. And thanks to everyone who's been encouraging us to get another episode out. We're glad to hear from you all. You can email us with your feedback or any ideas. We received an email from a listener. She says, I've been enjoying listening to y'all's podcasts. She must be from the American South. I don't know if this would be categorized as an interesting topic, but I've had this floating through my mind for a long time. What is your opinion on fasting? The listener then went on with a number of questions and ideas related to the topic, which is really helpful. Thanks for that email. James and I have added this to our list of topics and look forward to talking about it sometime. If uh, any of you listening have any ideas or feedback about that topic, feel free to send us an email. Hopefully you'll see that episode in the not too distant future. And if any of you have an idea or a correction or some encouragement or whatever, remember you can email us at lookingoverlife at gmail.com. All right. See you later. Ciao.